Welcome to The Hendy Show, a podcast exploring the why behind some of today's most intriguing ideas, businesses, and personalities to inform and inspire the best version of you. I'm your host, Amanda Hendy. So today's episode is the first episode in a new special series focused on fertility, which I recently introduced in a quick solo episode. So if you haven't listened to that yet, be sure to check it out as well. But to kick off the series, I welcome Leslie Schrock, author of Bumpin', The Modern Guide to Pregnancy and Fertility Rules. In this episode, we discuss all things fertility and reproductive health. Leslie shares her personal experiences, including her pregnancy losses, as well as expert advice on optimizing fertility for both men and women. I know the fertility journey can be incredibly challenging. So if you are not in the emotional place to listen to this conversation, please stop here. If you do enjoy this episode, please help us grow by subscribing, liking, sharing, and leaving a review. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Leslie. Well, welcome, Leslie, to the podcast. Uh, So great to have you. As I've shared with you, and as some of my listeners know, I'm exploring having a child. And I have spent most of the last year focused on getting ready to conceive. So I've been thoroughly enjoying your new book, Fertility Rules, The Definitive Guide to Male and Female Reproductive Health. I've learned a ton both from your book and from going through this process on my own. And I'm really excited for this conversation and to share as much information as possible with listeners. Well, thank you for having me. And what a wonderful thing that you're doing all of this pre-work because that is one of the key messages that I would love for everyone who's listening to walk away with, which is, you know, we're all kind of told, get to your healthiest self before you get married so you can get in that big white dress and all these other moments in life. But we really don't give women the guidance that there's actually no more important moment than before you get pregnant because it's what, you know, what shapes your entire pregnancy. So I'm thrilled that you're doing that work. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to get into all the ways that women and men can prepare for pregnancy, but would love for you to first share more about your interesting background as an investor, kind of at the intersection of tech and health. uh, And then what inspired you to write these books? I have spent over a decade now working in digital health, health tech, whatever you want to call it, whatever it likes to call itself these days, but basically the convergence of the healthcare industry and the Silicon Valley tech scene. I lived in San Francisco for 13 years. And during that time, you know, I was kind of at the very beginning when no one was investing in this space. Back when I was on the founding team at Rock Health, I helped launch in the end probably over 100 companies. Uh, when I was there. And then I decided that I really liked to work with companies one-on-one. We kept launching them and they would leave the nest. And then I'd say, but wait, like I'm not done. This is no, you know, I just, you fall in love with these companies and these entrepreneurs uh, as an investor and, and as an advisor. And, you know, and when you're officing with them as we were, we were just all very close. So I developed a lot of pattern recognition you know, in that environment, reviewing all the applications. I think while I was there, it was like a couple thousand applications to get in. And I always really wanted to do something in women's health. We didn't take on any companies in the space while I was there. We saw some applications. But actually, I met uh, Kate Ryder, who's the founder of Maven, back when she was at Index Ventures. And she was just thinking about what came next. And was kind of part of the you know early cheerleading squad for for Maven was a very early advisor to that company, and I would say that experience and just what I learned being involved pretty deeply for a long time was how far we have to go with supporting women and families uh, all the way from you know fertility thinking about getting pregnant through the years uh, as a parent which. I now am. I have a four-year-old and two-year-old. But the path for me to get there was very hard. Uh, It was a complicated journey. You know, in the end, I was pregnant five times. I had a miscarriage. I had a second pregnancy that was chromosomally abnormal. We had a fatal condition that we technically... I had to have a medically necessary abortion. And that experience more than any other drove me to write my first book, Bumpin', 
which was meant to be a practical guide, is meant to be a practical guide to uh, pregnancy for families, for both partners, um, because I think that partners feel pretty left out from the early days of pregnancy all the way through the early days of parenting. And I think that, you know, women are, um, it's a tremendous disservice to women to exclude, you know, this other person from that when they can actually be very helpful. Um, and whether that person is a friend or family member, whether it's a husband or a wife, doesn't matter. But people in your life want to support you, but we don't really give anyone the, uh, you know, permission to do that. And so, you know, I wrote Bump In during the course of writing that book. I became very uh, upset about the state of maternal health, as we all, I think, these days are. Um, you know, 80% of maternal mortality is preventable. So what are we doing? Um, we're just kind of letting women, uh, we're letting women die when the truth is there's a lot we can do about it. And so I started doing a lot of research, um, you know, into the causes and why we are where we are. And um, what I really kind of, to the to the surprise of no one, I think that until we reach women before they are pregnant and get them to do some of the work that you are doing right now, because the rates of hypertension, diabetes, obesity, all of these comorbidities, the rates are so high now. And women are entering pregnancy with these conditions. We are not managing them very well. Um, but further, we're also not giving them the guidance that, hey, the time to get all of this you know, as in control as you possibly can is before you're pregnant, not while you're about to give birth. Um, so really, that's why I wrote Fertility Rules. Uh, it's meant to be a guide to reproductive health for men and women so that we all understand the basics of sperm, we understand the basics of eggs, and then we understand the basics of our own bodies and how they work. Um, it's very specifically a guide to biology. It is not a sex guide. It is not anything to do with that world. It is just science, which I think, unfortunately, none of us receive that education anymore uh, as kids. And, um, you know, as a mom of two boys, I think that's my most important job right now is raising two well-informed, respectful men that understand their own bodies and women's bodies. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wrote them because I felt like I had to, because I just didn't see, uh, the conversation that, you know, through now years and years of research and conversations with hundreds of providers, uh, was, was really being put out there. Wow. Yeah. You made so many great points there. And I, you know, one, I want to say, I'm sorry for everything that you went through, I'm sure those losses and the stress of that, um, were, you know, I, I can't even imagine what that feels like. So sorry you had to go through that. Um, you mentioned a staggering statistic. You said 80% of maternal mortalities are preventable. Is that right? If you remember the, uh, Serena Williams a few years ago yeah. with her first baby had a pulmonary, pulmonary embolism and she was at a great hospital. She was theoretically receiving really top quality care and yet... As a woman of color, she was in a healthcare setting. Uh, she was not, you know, uh, observed and listened to the way that she should have been. And to me, that is just completely unacceptable. You know, women of color are really, really disadvantaged in the system uh, due to a lot of reasons. Medical gaslighting is one of them. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, also no one teaches anyone how to be a patient and how to advocate for themselves in healthcare settings. And that has become a very big part of my work as well. I'm actually working on a second edition of Bumpin' right now. And that has become kind of a keystone of the book. You know, it's, it's still very practical. There are funny parts. It's still very conversational. But, you know, clearly we have so much work to do for women and supporting, um, you know, supporting healthy pregnancies, even in the ways that are hard, uh, that, that I really wanted to kind of take a stand yeah, that is such a great point. No one teaches us. You're right. No one teaches us how to be a patient. And then you combine that with a lack of knowledge about our own bodies, myself included there. 
um, plus a medical system that isn't really set up for doctors to spend real time with us. I mean, I guess <clears throat> I guess I can see why so many of issue, of our issues are missed. Um, but I would actually love to back up a little and start with men because as we both know, and I'm sure most listeners can appreciate, fertility often centers on women and the pressures of getting and staying pregnant are really, I think, felt by women. But as we know, sperm obviously plays an important part in this process. And you cite a statistic in the book that shocked me, another one, um, that that sperm concentration and total count have dropped more than 50% since the 1970s and no one really understands why. Can you expand on that? So you may have seen headlines a few years ago claiming sperm apocalypse that, you know, it was a children of men scenario. Truthfully, I think that is probably pretty unlikely, but let me tell you where it came from. There was a pretty famous study done in 2017 about sperm quality um, in the West that showed that it experienced an over 50% decline on multiple parameters, not just quality, um, but multiple parameters, and that no one really knew why. People thought it was exposure to chemicals, BPA and phthalates mostly, but it was truly frightening that this big number comes out and we, we don't have an explanation. And further, you know, I'm glad that 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 study got so much airtime, but I felt like it got airtime for the wrong reasons. Mm. Uh, It was more like the sky is falling rather than like, wait a second, you know, even if you don't believe that men are going to become completely infertile, we should all care that something major has changed with male fertility. Um, You know, I I think men are, there's so much you can do with IVF and assisted reproduction now that it's unlikely that there will just be no viable sperm anytime soon. But, um, you know, one of the major criticisms of that study was that it was only done really in Western countries. There was no proof that it was happening globally. And actually just last year, there was a study published that showed that it actually is a global phenomena. So I think there are a few problems, right? One is men, if you think women don't grow up knowing anything about their bodies, men are told nothing. Men are not taught about their sperm. Men are just kind of taught, like, don't have sex because you'll get somebody pregnant. Or here's how you put a condom on a banana. Or, you know, here, like, they don't really learn these basic things. Most men don't even know the difference between semen and sperm. Nor do they know that, you know, there are different metrics on which their sperm is judged if they would go and get it evaluated. Because most men would never dream of getting it evaluated. Uh, Now, this is changing. This is changing a little bit now. But the truth is, uh, about half of all infertility is caused by issues in men's bodies. And men don't know because about a quarter of men during the course of an infertility investigation are never even tested. And so what ends up happening is a couple presents to a clinic, clinic treats the woman, they might test the man right before they start, you know, a round of IVF or IUI because they have to do some kind of semen analysis to ensure it's going to work or that they're a good candidate. But even if the sperm parameters are not great, even if, you know, there's something going on, a lot of men aren't treated. They aren't diagnosed with anything. Um, and because we do have some cheat codes with, with IVF now that don't require very much sperm, nobody really cares. So, you know, I think we've got to shift our, our focus a little bit. Women are clearly, um, you know, treatment surrogates for men right now when it comes to infertility. It's clear that, um, you know, men want to be better, but they're scared because we still have this strange conflated sperm equals masculine equals self-worth, you know, vibe happening, which is completely ridiculous that, that people still feel that way, but they do. Fear is the number one reason men don't get tested. There are still some men who don't want to get tested for that reason. Um, but I think if you're undergoing an infertility investigation, it is not only the correct decision from a, an evidence perspective, but it's also your right as a patient. All of the medical guidelines now indicate that an infertile couple, both partners should be tested at the same time because just because there's an issue with you doesn't mean there's not also an issue with him. 
we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. And actually, could you explain the difference between semen and sperm? You can think of semen as like the pool, right? Like the liquid in the pool and the sperm are actually the little swimmers and they have a head and a tail and some other parts, but um, that's, that's it. Semen. And, you know, if you see a pool of semen, a very small percentage of it is actually sperm. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Just in case anybody didn't know that. You mentioned some lifestyle changes in the book that can help uh, with male fertility. Um, Could you go over some of those? And you also touched on making those changes at least three months before trying to conceive. So could could you share more about that as well? Yeah, I I think right now we really live in a world where people just want to take a supplement or a pill and get a quick fix. And that is just not the way that optimizing your fertility works for either either sex. So women and men should always start three to six months before, maybe even a year before you start to conceive if you're really looking ahead and start doing a few things. Number one is dealing with any medical conditions that you have changing medications to make sure that they're fertility friendly um, and later pregnancy friendly uh, for women. Um, one example though is uh, Propecia actually has a it's, a, it's a hair loss medication that men take. It actually adversely affects sperm. So if you're taking it, you can just stop taking it. Your sperm parameters are turned around, but men's bodies regenerate sperm around every three months. And so they really have a lot more power over positively changing, you know, their fertility because of that. Women are born with all the eggs they ever have. Once they're chromosomally abnormal, that's done. But men, you know, do experience age-related fertility decline, but they regenerate it constantly. And so with three months, you can do a whole lot. But I think a few things that surprise men, one is like this hair loss medication thing is fairly recent. Um, THC, cannabis, you don't want to take that. It adversely affects sperm. Cycling puts too much pressure on your testicles. They get too hot. Sperm hates heat. Same thing with saunas, hot tubs, steam rooms, all of that. Um, sperm really does not like heat. So it does reduce uh, your, your parameters um, you know, noticeably when you subject your body to too much heat. Processed foods, trans fats, artificial sweeteners, too much uh, added sugar. That's another big one. So if you're a big soda fan, please stop. Both women and men, please. Um, Soda is really not good for your fertility. And then I think there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, activity and exercise. So what does activity mean? Activity means moving your body. It doesn't have to mean running a marathon. It doesn't have to mean doing yoga. It means moderately finding ways to move your body and remain active. And that can mean walking. For some people, it is just picking up walking. If you're new to activity, just start walking and increase a little bit every day, every week until you get to, you know, the 10,000 step thing is is fine. It's a fine goal, but you don't even really need that much. But just moving your body, make sure you're not doing too much sitting. Um, You know, I I think the cannabis thing really surprises a lot of men. And again, it's a three-month thing. You've got to just give it up cold turkey. Smoking kind of goes without saying, please don't smoke. Don't smoke anyway, but really don't smoke. Don't vape. Don't use any tobacco products. Men and women, it's really bad for your fertility. It's one of the worst things. And then alcohol is another one where the evidence is not... uh, The evidence doesn't show that you have to just completely stop uh, and never touch it. But what it does show is anything more than kind of occasional to lightly moderate drinking is not good. So if you can keep it to a few drinks a week, but don't do much more than that if you're really trying to adhere to this. Um, but you know, it's, it, I think we all start for people to feel successful when they start to take on, um, you know, thinking about their fertility and being healthy. And the truth is, you know, especially with food, it should be an 80-20 thing. 80% of the time, you really try to stick to a healthy diet, you know, whole foods, unprocessed foods. The other 20% of the time, eat what you want, but just don't binge. Um, And I think that that's the right strategy through, you know, not only, you know, conception and fertility planning, but also through pregnancy and later becoming a parent. Because let me tell you something, like... 
before you have kids, you have lots of time to think about these things. And then eventually you will find yourself in a restaurant eating special chicken with ranch dressing, thinking like, why am I doing this to myself? You know, like this happened to me recently and I got like very, I have a very sensitive stomach and I got very sick. Uh, that's what we call chicken tenders in our house because we, we have them when we go out to eat sometimes because every kid's menu has them. But, um, you know, like it's, you've got to just build that muscle while you have time to think about it. So generally just being as healthy as you can be. Yeah. Sleep, hydrate, all the things that you already know. And just 80-20, just 80-20. Make it feel sustainable, not like you're being deprived. Mm-hmm. What about steroids? I feel like a lot of guys take steroids these days. Well, they take them and they lie about it. So that is a big one, actually. Um, the numbers on steroid use are pretty shocking. They're probably underreported. And you can get a lot of it on the internet now, which is, um, and this is the same thing with Ozempic, by the way. Ozempic and all of the um, semaglutides are not fertility friendly, uh, particularly. There, there haven't been enough studies yet to know how much it affects male and female fertility. But what we do know is it absolutely should not be used during pregnancy. And so what most um, you know, physicians who focus on weight loss will do uh, is work with to taper off. Um, if you're taking it and that's not, if you're just, you know, taking it off label, you should absolutely stop a few months before. Just let it all get out of there. Let your body adjust to its new normal because it does, body fat is an endocrine organ. It does change your, your hormone levels. So it really is best to let yourself um, adjust. But actually, yeah, one of my favorite, I interviewed a lot of reproductive endocrinologists in the writing of this book. And I continue to have a lot of great conversations because um, they that community really um, has really responded well to the book, which has been just fabulous. I've done a lot of events at fertility clinics with different REs. But one of my favorite stories was a couple shows up to this doctor's clinic and he sits down with the couple and he looks at them And he instantly knows the problem and, you know, says, goes through the health history thing with both of them kind of in front of each other and then sends the female partner down the hall to do some blood work. And he says to the male partner, you know, hey, um, just want you to know if there's anything else you're taking. No, 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 I'm not taking anything else. Okay, well, if you're taking anything that is perhaps an anabolic steroid, Um, you should know that it negatively impacts your sperm parameters a lot. And you will need to figure out how to taper off of it for like probably close to a year uh, for you to have testicular function restored. Because he looked at the guy and the guy was like a total beefcake and he knew. (laughs) He knew. But what he realized was that um, his female partner had probably never known him off of steroids. So this is something our, our REIs talk about a lot which is that, um, you know, they have to kind of figure out a custom plan with men, sometimes away from their female partner to, you know, taper off and to, to manage that medication, but it takes time. And, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money on IVF regardless. If you don't need to do it, if you can avoid IVF and go to a lower um, intervention treatment, you absolutely should. Uh, one thing I, I was thinking about too is how women have gynecologists, right? We we have a doctor. We start saying very at a youngish youngish age um, about our reproductive health. Who do men talk to? Turns out, not very many men have doctors. So most don't even have a primary care provider. Uh, you know, men are chronic underutilizers of the healthcare system in general. It kind of starts in childhood. Like close to half of men are told as kids that men don't complain about their health problems. And so as a result, many do not seek medical care unless maybe something is physically falling off. And even then, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just not, uh, it's, it has not been an area of interest for men historically. Now, it's changing a little bit. Gen Z is engaging more. We're seeing some, you know, movement in, in you know, younger generations, but certainly for millennials and above, it's not really a thing. So primary care providers, uh, another doctor that men often see is a urologist, just a standard issue urologist. 
And the person that men should see for infertility is a reproductive urologist. Now, there are some problems here. One is that there are only around 200 of them in the entire country. So there are not enough reproductive urologists to serve the needs of men, even if you are willing to go to an appointment. Yeah, and I think a lot of people forget that reproductive endocrinologists are OBGYNs. They received training in women's bodies uh, and did an additional fellowship in infertility. Uh, and that is, you know, who they are. So they're trained a little, but not enough. So, um, you know, when you go to an appointment, they, they know that they should do it. They often push men to do it. But if there's a problem, you know, they really have to refer out to a specialist and there's not always someone, uh, you know, that's, that's there to help. And this is an area that I think is just really, um, you know, not talked about enough, which is that even if men were getting tested and treated, who's, who's going to do it? Um, there aren't enough reproductive endocrinologists either. There are only about 1,300, but I mean, that's wow. a lot more than, yeah, our user in endangered species. We're not training enough. We don't even have enough fellowships. So it's a huge, uh, huge opportunity and huge uh, problem. Wow, that is a huge problem, especially with more and more of us having babies later in life. Yikes. Anyway, men, go get your stuff checked. All right, well, let's, let's move on to women. And as you refer to in your book, The Amazing Egg and uh, what we can and can't do to improve our egg quality and count. Yeah, this was, this was both a fascinating chapter to write and a hard chapter to write because as someone who, you know, I was 35 when I tried to get pregnant for the first time uh, and I ended up in the end uh, having, you know, three failed pregnancies. And all I was told at every step was bad luck, you mm -hmm. know, or, you know, oh, it's nothing you could have prevented. But no one really wanted to go into any more detail than that. And after writing this chapter, I understood why. Because unlike men who really can do a lot in three months, or if they have a condition known as a varicocele, which is a, you know, basically a vein that's blocking, um, you know, the sperm's uh, exit that they can fix a lot. Uh, women, on the other hand, once your body hits a certain age, it is simply less efficient at cell division. Uh, meiosis and mitosis, if anyone remembers high school biology. But the reason <laughs> that this matters is that meiosis is the process in which an immature egg becomes mature. And it involves splitting chromosomes. And when you hit 35, kind of when your body starts getting a little worse at that and then it starts getting much worse and then at 40 it's a lot worse um so age-related fertility decline for women is simply your body's inability to perform meiosis correctly so sometimes you'll end up with too many chromosomes sometimes you end up with not enough monosomies trisomies um and that is why egg quality is a problem for women. And there is no pill that you can take to fix it, unfortunately. So there are a lot of fertility supplements on the market that are, you know, promised to fix your egg supply and promise to do all this stuff. Number one, you can't rebuild your egg supply. Reminder, women are born with all the eggs they will ever have. Mm -hmm. Number two, once an egg is chromosomally abnormal, you cannot fix it. So really, this is why I am such a pusher of doing everything you can before you conceive to get your body into its healthiest place to optimize your odds. Because you do have that three-month window where the egg is maturing, where if you expose your body to positive substances, it just puts your best foot forward and it gives you the best odds of success. Yeah. And I'd really like to spend time there because we can't change our age. I'm over 40. Um, I've been told a million times that that can present challenges. I know that. I'm sure there are listeners who are in a similar position to me, and I don't need to hear anything about age anymore. Um, I'd really like to focus on the things that I can control and what I can do to put myself in the best possible position to conceive. Yes. And many, many women get pregnant at age 40. So mm -hmm. it is not impossible. It's not a cliff you fall off of. It's just reduced odds every month. That's it. Because of that, because of the meiotic errors in eggs. So 
Yeah, let's talk about what the evidence says about improving egg quality. So number one, nutrition is important. It's the same rule that men follow. You want to do an 80-20, just try your best to eat whole unprocessed foods as often as possible. No trans fats. Those are in a lot of frozen foods, baked, you know, foods in packages. Basically, as much as you can get away from packaged foods, the better. Added sugars, not your friend. No smoking. No THC cannabis products, please. Like some CBD products are not, this is an, this is a gray area that a lot of people have questions about. Um, we don't have a lot of data on CBD. They're similar compounds, but they're, they're not identical. But what I tell people is we don't have the data. So we don't know for sure. So that is your decision ultimately to make to risk, to weigh the risk benefits because some people use CBD to manage anxiety instead of using, um, you know, an SRI or something else uh, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, help with their mental health. So then it becomes, you know, a risk benefit of this medication that we know can cause some issues during pregnancy versus CBD, which, you know, if it's just a tiny bit, we don't know. So again, I think that this is best a conversation that you have with your provider if you are weighing these decisions, because it's not as simple as we'd all like it to be. Um, For women, moderate exercise is also very important. So if you work out too much too hard, you may not ovulate, which means if you're trying to, you know, conceive the old fashioned way, it's not going to work because no ovulation means no egg and no pregnancy. Um, But, you know, women should take a prenatal vitamin at least three months in advance to let folic acid love body, folate levels in your body build up. And you can take CoQ10 as well. Some prenatal formulations have it already, um, but a good prenatal has folic acid, iron, and choline. Those are three ingredients that are not always found in the correct amounts that you should always look for um, on the level. And there are obviously other ingredients that matter too, but I'm finding in, in an analysis of all these different brands out there that many do not have anywhere close to enough iron. And choline is very important for fetal brain development. Uh, we've known this for a while. We have not really done uh, the work. I think the pregnancy industry has not created enough awareness about this. And supplements are not regulated. So no one's really writing a rule that says, like, this is what makes a good prenatal vitamin. But I'm telling you that you need the correct amounts of you know, folic acid, iron, and choline at a minimum. You should have those three dialed because you can get a lot of the other things through food. And then other things that you would need. You'd want to work with a practitioner really to get um, you know, a customized supplement regime going if you need it, because many people don't. If you take mm-hmm. too much, you're just going to pee it out anyway. Uh, so you just have really expensive pee. And a lot of the time, there are also side effects that people don't understand because they think that it comes in a gummy form. Look at that. It's candy. It must be fine. It must be harmless. And the truth is, it's not actually correct. Um, supplements can have pharmacological level effects on the human body. And it's not meant to just be popped like candy, even though you can buy it wherever and it feels like it is. Yeah, I think that's probably surprising to some people. Um, I learned that through my investing days that the FDA doesn't approve dietary supplements for safety Mm-mm. and effective, effectiveness or their labeling before they're sold to the public. So I think dietary supplement companies are actually responsible for ensuring that their products are safe and accurately labeled. So you definitely need to be really careful there. And please take something that's not a gummy. Uh, it's really not the best form. Capsules, other, other forms are much better. Gummies have added sugar. They have all kinds of weird ingredients because it has to bind and they often don't have the correct percentages, even what's marketed on the label. Cause the FDA has some funny rules about, um, you know, labeling adherence and the level at which, so it could be 120%. It could be 80%. You don't really know uh, because FDA treats supplements like food. Um, can you also speak a little bit more to the importance of hormonal balance and, um, 
the common uh, endocr endocrine disrupting chemicals that I think we're all in constant contact with? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, the whole hormone balance movement drives me a little nuts <laughs> because I think that it it's it's trying to say that we are all meant to be at these idealized levels and all women have slightly different levels that are their their ranges mm -hmm. but there's not like a golden number that every single person should be it's the mm -hmm. same reason a lot of the you know microbiome vaginal microbiome like we still we know a lot more about hormones than we do about other areas but research in that area is still mostly been done in like the last hundred years. It's still relatively new compared to other areas of the body and not as understood as it should be. But there are some simple ways that you can avoid endocrine disrupting chemicals in your daily life. What are they? They are chemicals that are, you know, artificial made and used for various purposes that include fire retardants, nonstick coatings, you know, you have exposure to air quality, um, air pollution, things like that. But how can you avoid this without wandering around with a tin hat on? Well, number one is when you're heating up food, don't heat your food in plastic. Don't store your food in plastic unless you really have to for some reason. It's just not the best way to store food. Glass, you can reheat. It's much better. Um, but number one thing is just don't reheat your, don't microwave plastic ever. Um, number two, you know, when it comes to things that you're bringing in from outside, take your shoes off before you enter your house or leave them in a front area. It's another way to just not spread that much. Also do an audit of the products in your house. A lot of cleaning products, personal care products, less and less these days, but some of them still contain parabens. They still contain things that we should not be putting on our bodies. And, um, you know, women are pretty careful about this when they're pregnant, but they don't do it uh, much when they are trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. And really that's the right time to take stock and just get a clean beauty and a clean house routine in order. Um, another one of my favorites actually, and I probably look crazy every time I do this, but try not to touch receipts. The dermal ink in receipts at the store can stay in your bloodstream for like two weeks. It's insane. So just like decline the receipt, take a picture, throw it away, whatever, but just don't touch the ink. I, I really probably do. That is like my one really unhinged thing. Cause as soon as I, as I read it, I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't want this. <laughs> this is something I can control. I don't want to touch any of this anymore. So, um, but those are, you know, those are a few ways. And then, you know, just look at the products that you use. Look at the, the ingredients in the clothes that you wear. Mm -hmm. um, try to stay to natural fibers, you know. Um, I, I think we can really drive ourselves crazy, but the truth is there are a lot of really great brands out there now that are quote unquote clean, that do not contain a lot of these, um, you know, these different substances. And it's just a matter of doing a little bit of homework, but there's a huge range. It doesn't always have to be super expensive either. Like go to the grocery store and buy shampoo. And guess what? Some of the, some of the cheapest brands are totally clean now, which is great. Same with laundry detergent. Yeah. There are a lot of great brands now, both for beauty and home, like detergent, cleaning supplies, etc. I actually went down the clean beauty train a while ago. I'm not fully switched over yet, but I've, I've made a lot of, a, a lot of changes there. Um, I know Sephora has their clean beauty line, which is helpful. Hopefully it's accurate, but do you have another resource that you find helpful as a place to go and figure out, um, you know, what, what's good, what's not good? Yeah, I think that one place you can go for information about these products is the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org, I believe. Uh, you can look, look it up. But one easy rule of thumb is if you look at a product and there are a bunch of words that have more syllables and that you cannot pronounce, uh, and any of them end in lates or they have paraben in it or any of that, that's an indication that it may be a product that contains an ingredient that you don't want. And there is actually a whole guide in um, Bumpin' and I believe the same thing in Fertility Rules where it actually lists out 
exactly what those are called and what to look for and where most of them appear and like the worst ones to avoid really. What about Botox and other cosmetic like injectables, fillers, all of that? Yeah, listen, that is another area that unfortunately has not been studied enough due to the ethical quandary of performing research on women and fetuses. So you will not find a lot of literature about injectables at all. Um, There's one study of Botox that shows maybe it's fine, but it was a survey. I mean, the quality of the data just isn't very good um, is the short answer. Mm -hmm. Any physician, uh, you know, anyone who has a medical degree is probably going to decline Botox from the time you're pregnant to the time that you're finished breastfeeding. Because for most people, it is just cosmetic. And elective cosmetic procedures are seen as, you know, you can skip it. So most injectors, if they have an MD in their name, they will not perform it. Um, and that is their choice. That is their, some do. If you go to a med spa, some will do it. Um, some of the same concerns exist with, you know, fillers, right? But it, it's, that's hyaluronic acid. So technically, it's thought that that's safer. But again, no injector who has had any amount of medical training is probably going to inject you while you're pregnant. And truthfully, unless you're taking Botox for medical reasons, I would just skip it. We just don't know. It might be fine, but there's no evidence that it is fine. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to that story about the guy whose wife probably never saw him not on steroids. And I'm sure there's some women whose (laughs) partners have never seen them, not with Botox, but it's not worth it. No. Well, I mean, listen, the other funny thing is that, you know, all of these odd things happen during pregnancy to your body, like to your hair, to your face, to your nose, to your feet, everything changes. You know, you have this beautiful glow for a little while. Most women get it like for at least a couple weeks at some point, not everybody, but it's your body and, and your skin and everything changes so much that you may find that you really like the way you look. You may find that you don't, but to me, you know, people ask me if I if I did it while I was pregnant, and I said no. I I just didn't want to take the risk. I went through so much yeah. that I was a little more conservative. But again, if you're taking Botox for medical reasons. That is a decision to manage together with your provider because there are some very good reasons that people take Botox too. Yep. Yep. Good point. Um, Well, I know all of this is obviously a lot to think about, a lot to manage. It can be highly stressful. Um, And you, as you already shared, went through so much with your pregnancies. How did you manage the mental and emotional component of it all? Well, with my first son, I threw a lot of heavy stuff, (laughs) actually. I was uh, I was very very active with him. I did um, very modified, you know, strength training and CrossFit mm-hmm. uh, until I was forty one weeks. Wow! Actually, um, that I've always been a person who processes frustration, anger, anxiety, stress, all of that by moving. So you know, even in those last weeks when it felt hard and it felt like maybe I don't want to scrape myself off the couch right now and do this. I always felt better after I did it. And so I just made myself show up. And I think that that is a very underrated state of being, which is like when you're pregnant, there are just times when you don't want to do anything. You want to just sit. And sometimes actually the right thing to do is just get up and show up. And even if it's not the best workout of your life, even if it's not the longest walk of your life, whatever, it's still good to just try. Um, And I think that that's, uh, you know, there are so many ways to manage your mental health while you're pregnant. Obviously, exercise is a good one. It's good for lots of reasons. But, you know, I went to grief counseling when I was navigating my experience. I, you know, I did the whole like burning sage thing. Like I did all kinds of things that frankly were out of what I would normally how I would normally process. Like I've used therapy at different points in my life. I am a huge advocate of therapy. I think it unfairly is associated with, you know, um, long-term problems when in reality, it's actually good for processing life changes, processing 
events, processing, like very specific things. And I worked with a really wonderful grief counselor. So that was, you know, what allowed me to really be in my pregnancy with my first son. But it's so different for people. There's no, I, I, this is another area of pregnancy that I think is so, um, doing a disservice to women, there is no right way to manage your mental health. It's whatever works for you. You've got to decide what makes you feel good. Do you like to cook? Do you like to read? Do you like to take a bath? Do you like to take a walk? Do you like to be in nature? Do you like to be with friends? You know, I think that the only way not to do it is to do it totally on your own. I think bottling it up is not generally uh, a, a very, you know, productive coping mechanism. And this is from a bottler, by the way. Uh, I prefer to I prefer to eat my feelings, but I got to tell you, like, it's such a huge life transition. And everyone, every parent that you meet has been through something. It is just never 100% easy. No one gets it easy from the time they try to conceive all the way through sending a kid, like, you know, to college or getting them out of the house. Like, at some point, there will be a struggle. But I think it's really training that muscle. And, you know, if you have a partner, if you have a best friend, whoever is with you on the journey, bring them in. Like, let them be your person. Let them be a support. Extend it out to more people. I think that's another, you know, another thing I see a lot, um, which is that, you know, sometimes we really lean on one person when the reality is usually that one person can't be everything. And so it's really helpful to have like your tribe, your village who who can support you, um, whether they're in the throes or they just went through it or they're just, you know, great at helping think about these things. Yeah, I think that's really, really great advice. And like you, I, I find kind of my sanity and process a lot through exercise and movement. And I, you know, can't, encourage people enough to, to try to incorporate some movement into their life. Um, I also go to therapy and I, I think the world would be a much better place if everybody um, had therapy, if that was a normal part of our care that was available to everybody. Um, earlier, we talked about patient advocacy and how most of us don't really know how to advocate for us ourselves in a medical situation. So what advice do you have for us um, in being the best advocate for our own health? A few ways. One is to recognize that doctors are just humans and they are not always perfect. They are not infallible. They are not always perfect. And they are affected by what you're going through too. I have never spoken to an OBGYN who had a difficult birth or who had a really close call with a patient who was not really torn up about it afterwards. Um, it is just, we all assume that like, oh, they just, you know, they just move on afterwards. No, they're people too. So I think that that's, that's treating your doctor like they're a person from the beginning of your relationship means asking questions, not just assuming that they're a mind reader and think that you understand everything. You know, walking to appointment, doing prep for appointments is another very underrated way to walk in and have a great one. Come in with a list of questions. Come in with all of your symptoms written down. Like write as much down and show up with it as you can before, you know, really important appointments or first appointments with new providers so that you get more out of it. You've already done all the prep work. You can give it to them. You know, you've thought about all of it. it. Means when you're filling out your health history for the 500th time, you're not having to think about, you know, oh wait, which uncle was that that this happened to, or what year was this particular? Just put it all together and print it out and take it with you, or have it on your phone, whatever. Um, but I, I think that really feeling empowered to ask questions and understanding that informed consent is a like it's the keystone of medical care. It means that your relationship with your provider is consensual. It means that you understand and you agree to every procedure, every touch, everything. But most people don't really understand that that is their right. Like that is your right as a patient. It is like fundamental to medicine and the healthcare system. Um, you know, but you've got to be willing to, a- to ask questions and respectfully work together with your provider in a way that is, you know, open. You don't lie. 
so many people lie to their doctors. Don't lie. Like if you drink a lot, you got to be honest about it. They can't treat you if they don't know. And they probably do know, honestly. Mm-hmm. Most of them know. They've seen a lot. They've heard it all. They've done it all. Just remember that they're people and take the best you know, advantage of the time that you have. I think the other thing that is very important for people to understand is that it's not just an OBGYN that serves pregnant women. If you are, you know, a lower risk patient and your, you know, insurance or uh, provider can be a, you know, a, if, if it covers a midwife, you can go see a midwife. Those appointments are much longer. If you do use an OBGYN and you're trying for a vaginal birth, even if you are getting a C-section, you can hire a doula. And, you know, it's not free, but it's a huge, huge, huge help. Um, I'm a huge fan of doulas. I am petitioning everyone I know who has any power to provide doulas to every birthing woman in this country because I think that it would make such a tremendous impact because they really help with the emotional side, with, you know, childbirth, staying with you because, you know, you roll into the hospital and you go to the, you know, later labor and delivery and you're kind of left alone for a while. There's not a doctor with you with every single contraction. There's not a nurse with you with every single contraction. They have other patients. And so doulas are just for you. So I think it can be a really valuable thing. They're a little more emotionally attuned to what you're going through. And they are just an incredible resource. They can tell you kind of what's going to come next and you know what should be happening at certain points and what something means. So they're kind of like translators, but they're also... I had a doula team for my first birth and I just feel so fortunate that, that, you know, it was the best investment I made during pregnancy. Skip the maternity wardrobe and get a doula. <laughs> wow. That's really great advice. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for writing these books and doing so much of the legwork for us. And I encourage anyone, um, you know, going or thinking about going on this journey to read your books because I found them to be so helpful. And uh, so where can people, where's the best place for people to find you and your work? Uh, You can find me everywhere, pretty much. I get a lot of notes from uh, readers on Instagram and I try to respond to all of them. Email, same thing, but I'm at leslieschrock.com and Bumpin' Infertility Rules are pretty much everywhere, including your library, if you want to just get it that way. Uh, But yeah, and I love hearing from people, and it really is just a privilege to get to do this work and to speak to readers. So please, if you have questions or comments, I really do, uh, really do love it, and I try my absolute best to, to answer everything I can. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 